Our Heavenly Gracious Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you so much that we can be present here to learn more about this gift that you have given us. So often this gift is misunderstood, misrepresented. And I just pray that through today's um, class or workshop that we may get a better picture of what a prophet actually is and why you have given us this gift. Lord, uh, I pray that the presence of the Holy Spirit be here, that He may illuminate our minds, that the teaching element may guide us and truly teach us things which we do not know. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, let me just hand out some outlines. We're just going to be going through these pretty much. Uh, a reason why I, I choose to go with outlines rather than PowerPoint is because you usually can't take my PowerPoint home with you. And so with this, I'm going to do my very best to put stuff in your hands so that you can use it for yourself. And uh, when teaching others about the spirit of prophecy. Um, today's title of this part of the session is called, What Is It Anyway? You know, often we talk about prophets and the prophetic gift or the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy, many different titles, but we don't really know what a prophet is. And so I think it's super important to establish what a prophet is in the first place. Um, when I was brought up a Seventh-day Adventist, thank you. I was brought up a Seventh-day Adventist in Australia. And um, I grew up not knowing that the Seventh-day Adventist church um, claims to have a prophet. I never heard of Ellen White. I, I, Brought up some of the Adventists. Well, you know, nominal, of course. Um, I never, never really believed or grasped the message that my parents, or this group that my parents were a part of. Yeah, to me, it was, um, I had established good friendships there, and that's kind of the extent of church for me. Are you staying here or going to another class? All right, let me give you some outlines. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, so I didn't really know. And then in the fall, uh, no, sorry, in the spring here of 2007, um, the Lord was able to actually grab my heart and convert me. And so I was like, well, I've got to put everything to the test and see what this, because for the first time, Randy Skeet was preaching. He's quoting this Ellen White person. I'm like, what? Who's this? You know? So I got to check it out. And I'd go to a lot of defenses of Ellen White. I'd go to the ABC and just kind of stock up on all these Ellen White, you know, books and... How many of you heard of Dale Ratzlaff? Anyone? He's one of these um, antagonists, if we can put it that way, against the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He was a minister, really got derailed in the Ford movement, tried to stick around a bit, but now he's got this magazine out there called Proclamation. And the essence is he's proclaiming the true gospel rather than the Seventh-day Adventist gospel. And he's one of these big Ellen White antagonists. And he has a statement in one of his... Uh, proclamation magazines, I think it was la the April of last year, where he says, Seventh-day Adventists have realized how unbiblical Ellen White is. So they've tried to depict her in this lovely grandmother. They've given her transformation as this lovely little grandmother, and that's how they... And unfortunately, this is often all too true. Like, as I was picking up these defenses and reading these books, 
no one was going, thus saith the Lord, look, let's see, can we verify? It's like, well, she was just a person, but she was a lovely, she had a sense of humor, she was this and that. And, and don't get me wrong, I truly do believe from reading her testimonies and testimonies of others who were associated with her, that she really was a godly lady, that she really was a godly Christian lady. Um, can I ask you to pass that out to the rose that just come behind? Sorry. Um, she really was, but we never see in Scripture. All right, yeah, come on through, come on through. No, don't, don't, don't be sorry, come on through. <laughs> we never see in Scripture God saying to Israel, you know what, except Jeremiah, because, well, he's a nice guy. You know, you never see a test in Scripture where God's like, no, you need to accept this as person as a true prophet because they're really a lovely, caring person. Now, don't get me wrong, Ellen White was these things. However, we need not to be afraid to test things from the Scripture, yeah? Amen. I was talking with a couple of people last night, and, and something that I'm very proud of when it comes to the Seventh-day Adventist Church is that I don't know anyone who questions the Seventh-day Adventist faith more than Seventh-day Adventists. Praise God. Amen. Praise God, for sure. Because we actually have people who genuinely want to know what this this book, this Bible actually teaches. We're not down with just getting the church manual and studying that. We're not down with just getting the 28 fundamental book and just studying that. Let's see whether it really complies with the rest of Scripture. You know, I want to know that I'm in truth. I, I, I quite frankly don't care about organizations. I do. But the point is I need to make sure that I myself... I'm in the place where the Lord desires me to be. And I think the same for all of us, yeah? Amen. And so, I teach here at Mission College now. Um, and I teach the prophetic guidance class. Something that really kind of provoked me was we really need to be presenting firm biblical, biblical reasons why the prophetic gift now, let's see it from the Bible, because the reality is this. It may be biblical, right? But if we ourselves don't understand it from the perspective of the Bible, we end up getting derailed. Through the Ford movement in Australia, 160 ministers alone in Australia left the Adventist church. Over half of them today are atheists. And we'll be getting on later on in this class, how does this whole denying Ella White turn into becoming an atheist? We'll, we'll get into that. It's not that you, if you deny her, you deny, you know, that you're ever a Christian, things like that. But we will get into that. So it's important for us to be firmly grounded in the word alone. So that if someone comes up with an accusation, we can be like, oh, hold up. Well, what about this? You know, is so-and-so a false prophet because of the same situation? And so... With no further ado, let's uh, get... Does everyone have an outline? Alright, praise the Lord. Let's, um, let's just read part A. You there under in introduction? Okay. The church that is presented as God's final, the church that is referred to as the remnant, the sole survivor of the true apostolic church, which is... The Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
<laughs> the church that is to carry the God's final message to the entire world is identified by two particular characteristics. Some may know this, some may not. In Revelation 12 verse 17, let's turn there. Do you guys have your Bible? We're going to be going through the Bible a fair bit and hopefully through this class, we'll uh, get a little faster at flicking through the Bible and getting to know where things are because we'll be here, there and everywhere just, just making sure we have a firm biblical foundation. This is where the Bible describes God's true people. Chapter 12 of Revelation. From the beginning to the end, it is following God's true people. From Israel all the way through to the dark ages to the end of time. And the very last verse, it depicts God's last people. And it gives them two characteristics which they will have. God's chosen people. It says in verse 17, pardon me. And the dragon, and by the way, who's the dragon? Satan, Satan all right. And the dragon was what? Wrath, or some translations say enraged, some say furious. Now this is kind of the throbbing, and he's just angry. It says the dragon was enraged with who? The woman. the woman. Now in Bible prophecy, what does a woman represent? A church. And so here we have this picture straight away that the devil is furious. He's, fr he's wrath, he's enraged with a church. Now question straight away there. Would the devil be angry at a church that is doing his work? Would the devil be angry with a church that is not truly representing God? Not at all. Why would he be angry at something that's helping him? You know, he, the Bible says he's God's enemy, his adversary. So here we have straight away this picture. The devil is furious with this specific church. And what church is it? It says, And he went to make war with, some say, the remnant of her seed. Mine says, the, um, pardon me, the rest of her offspring. What's a remnant? How many of you have seen like carpets, you know, the remnants? It's the offcuts, the leftovers. I don't like to describe it this way. Because it's kind of, oh, that's what's left over. The true biblical thought that, that, that's coming through when it says the remnant is the survivors. Because the dragon we see is wrath. He's angry with them and he's making war with them. And the survivors of the true church have two characteristics. And that is those who keep what? And by the way, how many commandments is this? <laughs> the commandments of God. Like this is one of the definitions that God chooses to use for us to be able to be identified. For us not to be deceived in what people group we're with. But he's like, hey, if they don't have the commandments of God, they're not the final people. Because it says at the very end, the dragon will be wroth with people who have this. If you don't have it, the dragon's not angry with you. And, but that's just the first characteristic. The other one is what? And have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We're really going to be kind of digging into this testimony of Jesus Christ and what that actually means.
And of course, don't worry, we'll be using scripture alone to interpret itself. Um, from the very beginning, Satan's always been after and trying to demolish, if I can put it that way, God's commandments. Whether it be on an individual basis or whether it be on a corporate setting, he's always been angry at getting rid of, uh, being um, focused in getting rid of God's commandments. How many of you remember the story of the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to be saved? And what did Jesus start doing? Starts listing the commandments. Now that's not salvation by works. That's salvation by faith. But according to Jesus himself, are the commandments important for salvation? Of course. Don't you think that someone who doesn't want us to be saved would be trying to get rid of them? kind of makes sense to me. But let's focus on the testimony of Jesus. Um, these two texts that we're about to go to, coupled together, will be the theme throughout the whole thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I used to, when I preached, you know, it'd be like, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, say amen when you get there. And then you got like these five people, you know, they're kind of proud, like, amen. And you just see a whole bunch of people after that, you know, just kind of just trying to scurry to go there. So now I just kind of wait to hear when the pages stop. And then we kind of move on from there. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 1. Just to get the context of what this is speaking about, okay? Now I'll ask. Amen. Can I get permission to read? Amen. All right. Moreover, brethren... I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea and were baptized into who? Moses, Moses in the cloud. This whole context of this passage before verse 11, which was, we're going to get to, is the context of the Exodus, where God's people, Israel, where God took them out of Egypt and led them to the Canaan. But we know they had to make a few stops, or not stops, but <laughs> something for 40 years. <laughs> this is the movement of the Exodus. The what? This is where God's people were getting moved out from Egypt, from captivity, into freedom, the promised land. It, it describes this from verse 1 through 10, but we're going to jump to verse 11 real quick. Okay, now all these things, what are these things? The Exodus, right? The, what it's just described. It describes the Exodus. Now it says all these things happen to them as examples. As what? And they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have what? Come. It's saying this whole Exodus movement is an example of what God's people at the very end of the age are going to go through. You following that? Is that scriptural? Have I manipulated scripture? No. It's saying, and by the way, how many of you have studied the parallels between the Exodus and the Advent movement? Anyone? It is the most perfect parallel that I have found in scripture yet. I can't find a better one so far. It's amazing. But it says the things which happen this way, they're an example of how it's going to happen at the end of time. Now jump with me to Hosea chapter 12, I believe, in verse 13. 
It's just after the book of Daniel. After Daniel, before Joel, Hosea chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12. Now let, let's remember, the Bible's just told us this Exodus experience is an example of how things are going to happen at the end of time, yeah? For God's people. Now listen to verse 13. Or read along. By a what? Prophet. The Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. And by a prophet, he what? Preserved. Now here's a, just a question that we can just think of logically, okay? Absolutely just blatant logic here. If the Bible says the way the accidents happened is an example of how things are going to happen at the end of time, is it logical then when we find out that it was by a prophet that the Lord led them out and by a prophet he preserved them that something like that might happen at the end of time? Is there some logic there? Yes. If the Bible says the way this happened is going to be the way it's going to happen at the end of the age. And we read that in 1 Corinthians 10, yeah? And then he says, by a prophet, the Lord led them out, and by a prophet, he preserved them. Is there some, and this is just one hint, I'm not asking us to, yes, I believe in Ellen White from this verse. No, but is there something, just an indication or an implication that there could be a prophet to lead God's people at the end of time? I, I, I believe most certainly, most certainly, see, See there. Um, actually, before we get into this, I am a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. As a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, I am three things. What is the most important thing, the first and foremost important thing that I am as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? Sorry? Before that, before that follower of Christ, a Christian. First, pardon me, first, thank you very much. First and foremost, I am a what? And I believe for each and every one of us, first and foremost, we ought to be Christians. Yes? yes. Second, what are we? Sorry? Brother and sister, okay. I'm thinking something more specifically. First and foremost, we as Seventh-day Adventists are three things. First of all, we are Christians. Second of all, we are Protestants. What are we? Protestants. What does that mean? Protestants. So the question is, what are we protesting about? Anything that doesn't follow the Bible. Exactly. Any false system of teaching, any false system of religion. Specifically Babylon, which with Bible's plain indication is um, the great harlot or the papal system, the Catholic Church. A and we have a lot of churches out there who are our brothers in Christ, Christians, who seem to have stopped protesting. They, 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 they claim cr Protestant Christianity. However, the very word in itself, Protestant, are they still protesting? I don't think so. But first and foremost, as Seventh-day Adventists, we are what? Christians. Second of all, we are, and being Protestant means what? Sola Scriptura. What does that mean? The Bible and the Bible alone. Don't give me nothing else. The Bible and the Bible alone. Don't give me a tradition. Bible and the Bible alone. Third thing as Seventh-day Adventists, what are we? 
Seventh-day Adventists. That's the answer. We are different to Protestants. We, we, we are Christian. We are Protestants. But we are Seventh-day Adventists. And by that I mean God's remnant people. We have these two characteristics. There's no other group out there that I have come across that has this. Um, now, we as Seventh-day Adventists are often changed with, challenged with difficulties. I have a friend of mine. His name's Tihomir Lazic. He's from uh, where my parents are from, Yugoslavia. That's how Australian gets a funny name like Boris. And uh, he's uh, the first Seventh-day Adventist to represent um, Seventh-day Adventists at Oxford University in uh, London, England. And um, you can't enter their bachelor's program without, bachelor's in theology without first having a PhD in theology from somewhere else. And you don't go there to learn about the Bible. You go there to represent your faith. And so for four, five, six years, you're just there debating others pretty much or answering accusations against your faith. Do you know why you believe what you believe pretty much? And he was telling me his examination. He had to sit in this room. It was like a big hall like this and just 12 chairs in a semicircle and one chair in the middle. He has to go sit in that chair. And 12 of these, his professors are around. And he has three questions he has to answer. It's all verbal. You sit there and boom. And this is the question. This professor says, don't you think it's just stupid how Seventh-day Adventists claim to be Protestants but have the writings of Ellen White? Like seriously, Tihomid, think about this. You claim to believe in the Bible and the Bible alone, but then you have this inspired author you can't be sola scriptura, you have to be primo scriptura, which means the Bible first, then Ellen White. And so he has to, to these 12 superb scholarly minds, defend the faith. And so he was just, you know, putting back great mind. Young guy, he's 25 years old. The next youngest guy in his class is 50 something. So he's this kid and he's just like, yeah, yeah. Anyway, he, uh, Answered very wisely, and which is, which is how we ought to answer. How many of you have ever said, "I believe in the writings of the uh, I believe in the Bible and the writings of Ellen White"? Raise your hand if you said that. I used to say that all the time. The true answer is, we as Seventh Day Adventists believe in the Bible and the Bible only. And because we believe in the Bible, we didn't have a choice but to accept what the Bible said would come. You follow that? If I truly believe in the Bible, and the Bible says you're going to have a red car show up your house, I'm going to go to the house and expect, for the, expect that red car. You know, if the Bible says there's going to be a prophet coming around this period, we ought to be expecting it if we truly believe in the Bible and the Bible only, right? And then... I was doing some study. He, he was emailing me because this went for a month. This question. And he goes back and they retaliate with a rebuttal. And so he's emailing me and Skyping together. And I'm kind of like digging. And there's like thousands of people, theologians around. I'm not a theologian. I'm just a kid. Um, but um, there's thousands of people, ministers here in the States that were going around trying to search. And I was doing uh, devotions. And um, came across that... Uh, it says, and we'll get into this later, the book of Nathan. 
How many of you knew Nathan the prophet existed? Any? There's a prophet in the Bible called Nathan. Now turn with me to the book of Nathan real quick. But the Bible says he wrote a book that was recorded in the book of Nathan. So he asked them this. Well, I kind of told him and he told them and the Lord really blessed. Um, illumination, we'll get into that. Um, the question was, if we know that the book of Nathan's out there somewhere, right? If the book of Nathan was discovered now, would that be added to the Bible? No, because the canon of Scripture is closed. However, would we still recognize it as inspired work? If it was authentic, yeah, exactly. No, but if we found the real deal, would it be recognized as inspired work? Most definitely, and that's the same as with us, with the Bible and Ellen White. We believe in the Bible and the Bible only. We believe the canon has been closed, but because of that, we have inspired writing. No, it's not included in this canon. Yes, we are sola scriptura, but the Lord has provided something else, and we're really going to get into this. Um, and but the point I want to make: we are Seventh Day Adventists. We really need to make sure that the foundation and the genesis of our faith is not in the writings of Ellen White. I'm just going to repeat that. Our genesis or our beginning, our foundation for our faith must not be in the writings of Ellen White. They don't need to be. We can show every single thing from the scriptures alone. We don't need Ellen White. Well, we do. <laughs> yes, we do need it. However, we don't need it to establish our faith. We don't need it to prove one doctrine that we have. It is sola scriptura. Can I get an amen? So now, with no further ado, let's figure out what a prophet actually is. You ready? Jump with me to Exodus chapter 10. Oh, pardon me, Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Exodus chapter 4, and what verse? 10. Now this is the story of a, where the Lord was calling Moses to ministry. And God's like, hey Moses, I'm about to save your people. Go. <laughs> or Moses is like, God, who am I? You know, I'm a nobody. I'm not a pastor. You know, we often use the same thing, right? Go share. You need to save this world for me. Oh, but who am I, God? And then, you know what God answers? If you read Exodus chapter 3, God says, pretty much, you're nobody. <laughs> he totally ignores it. Moses is like, who am I? And God's like, yeah, you're nobody. I'm God. <laughs> Exactly. You may be nobody, but I'm somebody. And then for me, I would like to think if I got into this situation, that I'd be like, okay, God, yeah, let's go. Let's save these people. But Moses, he was like, uh, uh, but I don't know what to say to them. What will I say to them? What if they ask me a question I don't know? And God's reply pretty much is, I'll tell you. And so God actually tells him exactly what to say. And then Moses, like that's not even enough for him. He's like, oh, but what if they don't believe me? <laughs> you know what God's answer? Because we ask these questions. How many of you ask any of these? God's answer is, that's none of your business. It's not 
up to us to make people believe. That's God's job. We just got to do what he's asked. And still after this, Moses is trying to get out of it. And in verse 10, um, we'll start reading in verse 10. I was in chapter 7 there. I was like, wait, that's not what I was thinking. All right, verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not what? Eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am what? Slow of speech. Lord, I'm not good at talking. How many of you have ever said this? Lord knows I have. Lord knows I have. Now, I've heard many scholars translate this to say that Moses had a speech impediment. That he had a stutter or something like that. However, that's not what I believe. They speak different language in Midian than they do in Egypt. I, I at home speak uh, Yugoslavian with my parents. That's kind of just how I was brought up. We speak that at home. I haven't been at home for a year and a half now, two years. Mum called me the other day and, you know, talking so rusty with the Yugoslavian, because I never use it here. And it's only been a year. Imagine 40 years not speaking the language. You totally forget it. And so even people who don't really know how to speak English well don't have an excuse. I go to a bilingual church and we have a lot of old people who really don't know how to speak English well. But the point is this. Listen to what God says. I love it how God has an answer for everything we have. Verse 11. So God said to him, Who made man's mouth? <laughs> or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have, I, have not I the Lord? You know, we may have concerns with sharing our faith. We may have these fears. But essentially, God's message is, don't worry about so much, because it's not so much about us. It's about God. Amen. But we read on. We're, we're trying to find out what a prophet is. Verse 12. Now therefore go... And I will put, uh, pardon me, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. And hand, and the, pardon me, and, and teach you what you say. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Lord, please send someone else. I can't do this. Send someone else. And God's like, Ah, oh, no. But I'll give you help. Now, this is where the most clearest definition in scripture is of what a prophet comes in. Okay. It says, verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he's also coming to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad, uh, pardon me, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him. What shall you do? Moses shall do what? Speak to him. Who's him? Aaron, his brother, right? Um, you shall speak to him and put the what? Words in his what? Mouth. So what is the function that Moses has to do? Is put the words in whose mouth? Aaron's mouth, okay? And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what you shall say. So he shall be what? Your what? Spokesman to the people. And he himself shall be as a what? 
mouth for you and you shall be to him as what? God. God. Jump with me to verse, uh, chapter 7 real quick, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. It says, So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your what? Prophet. What was Aaron to Moses? A prophet. In Exodus 4, he was his spokesperson, his mouthpiece. Moses was to tell Aaron what to say and Aaron was to speak it on behalf of Moses. And then he goes to say, you Moses are as God to Pharaoh and Aaron shall be your what? Prophet. Listen very carefully and don't misunderstand this. A prophet is a spokesperson for God. What are they? Let's just be really honest here. When someone says prophet, what do you automatically think? Shout something out. Sorry? Future teller, yeah? You know, palm reader or something like this. And it's got to do with this future telling thing. But the biblical concept of what a prophet is, it's a spokesperson for God. And maybe sometimes God does want to tell us the future. But if you look in scriptures, only one third is prophecy. That means the majority of scriptures, not predictions, but it's all written by prophets. Are you catching that? So the point of a prophet is to deliver the message that God wants us to hear. Do you see why Satan would be working so hard to get rid of the prophetic ministry? Because it, it is through the prophets that we actually hear what God's will is for our life. They are the spokespeople for God. What's a prophet? A spokesperson. Just to get, just in the, what is it? Mouth of two or three witnesses. Let's just look in Jeremiah real quick to see the same concept, the same idea of what a prophet is. Jeremiah chapter 1 and we'll start in verse 5. Jeremiah, just after Isaiah, Jeremiah chapter 1 and we'll be reading verse 5. It says, before, and who's the Lord speaking to here? Jeremiah, Jeremiah okay. He says, before I formed you in the womb, what? I just want to say real quick that this applies to each and every one of us. God knows us specifically. And He knew Jeremiah specifically. And He goes on to say, Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a what? Prophet, Prophet to the what? Now look at verse 9, I believe. Then the Lord put forth His hand and touched my what? And the Lord said, Behold, I have what? Put my words in what? Your mouth. Do you see the same concept of what a prophet is as a spokesperson? God is putting his words in Jeremiah's mouth for Jeremiah to communicate it to us. Yeah? You following? Yes. Let's just look at it in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, first book in the New Testament. And it reads, 
So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was what? Spoken by who? The Lord. How? Through the prophets, right? So the prophets actually spoke it, but the Bible considers it as though God himself said it. Through the prophets, right? What is a prophet? Do we see in Scripture that this is pretty plain of what a prophet actually is? And it's important to understand what a prophet actually is. Because often people are like, oh, they're a prophet, yeah? What predictions did they make? Well, what if God doesn't have a prediction for us? What if He has a correction? What if He has encouragement for us? What if He... Do you know what I mean? What if a prediction is not what God is trying to communicate to us? Can we discredit them just because they're not saying predictions? Most definitely not, because they're just a mouthpiece for God. In the Hebrew, if you look under 1, under section A, uh, a there. In the Hebrew, the word for a prophet is Nabi. What is it? Nabi. Once more. Nabi. Nabi. And this literal translation is... A sp- uh, pardon me, a, a spokesman, spokesman or speaker. What is it? In the Hebrew, don't look at your notes. What's the word for prophet? Nabi. Nabi. And that word in itself means spokesperson or speaker. In the Greek, we have the same concept. Prophetes. What is it? Kind of similar to what we say, yeah? Prophets. Prophetes. And that means one who speaks forth. Same idea, yeah? In Scripture, a prophet is a what? Spokesperson. I'm repeating this because A, repetition deepens impression. And it's vital to understand what a prophet actually is. Um, A prophet is not just a fortune teller. And here's a question. It's very interesting. When I was kind of thinking about this, you know one of these moments where you're just thinking, it's like, it just hits you and it clicks. What's the difference between a priest and a prophet. Anyone, raise your hand if you ever asked that before. Priest is um, some uh, human ordained and prophet is God ordained. Okay, very interesting. Very, I've never thought of that. Well, actually, priests are God ordained too, right? Oh, oh okay, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. A prophet represents God to the people. A priest represents the people to God. Do you see that? What's the difference between a prophet and a priest? A priest represents the people to God, and a prophet represents God to the people. So it's kind of a similar role of representation. It's just on the other other side, right? Now, we move on to B. The prophet is God's modus operandi. What does modus operandi mean? Mode of operation, operation, right? Do you have a handout? You want one? Do you have one as well? Let me uh, just grab them, pass them out. Thanks. Mode of operation, okay? Now, God, if we see, has many different modes of operation when it comes to communicating to people. For example, once he used the donkey. Is that God's preferred mode of operation? You know, is there a bunch of donkeys showing up saying, thus saith the Lord, you know? We don't see that. We don't see that. 
Turn with me real quick to Amos chapter 3 and verse 7. Amos chapter 3 and verse 7. It says, and I'll wait a little bit, I see a few pages turning. You will see as we go on why it's important for us to grasp what a prophet actually is. Okay? Um, Amos chapter what? 3 and verse 7. Uh, if, you don't, if you're into scripture memorization, which I kind of suggest, it's great. Um, a truly blessing, a true blessing, memorize the scripture, memorize this verse. It says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secrets to His servants, the what? So the question is, how much will God do without revealing things to us? Nothing. nothing. He won't do anything without revealing His secrets to whom? Who does it seem as though or what kind of method does it seem that is God's modus operandi, a preferred mode of operation when it comes to communicating to us? Prophets, Prophets right? But there are other, other modes. Go with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 28. First Samuel chapter what? 28. 28. And it says, and when who? Oh, sorry, I haven't given you the verse, but it's in your handouts. It's verse 6. And when who? Saul inquired of who? The Lord. The Lord did not answer him. Okay? The Lord did not answer him, either by what? Dreams or by Urim or by prophets these were three ways that God communicated to his people and when it says in the scripture if he doesn't answer me by a dreams via the Urim and the Thummim or by prophets God's not speaking because they're the modes of operation they're the things and sure there are unique cases where he uses a donkey however these are his modes of operation who knows what a Urim and Thummim is how many of you, this is the first time you've heard that thing? Alright, the priest, the priest um, had this robe, and then over that he had this vest thing, and then he had these tablets of different stones. And one or two of these stones, one was called the Urim, and the other one was called the Thummim. And pretty much, the high priest could ask God a question. And if it was a yes, the one on the right side would glow and shine. A direct answer from God. If it was a no, the one on the left will get kind of fady and musty, just kind of dull. And so, you know, how many... When I found out about this, I'm like, you know, forget trying to find the Ark of the Covenant. Let's find this Urim and Thummim thing, you know? <laughs> God, should I get an OIC? Yes! You know, that'd be awesome. That'd be great. And that's why David, I think it's in chapter 30, where he says, go get, get me, what? The vest, what's it called? Urim. Sorry? 
he asked him to go get the vest thing for him because the Urim and Thummim are on there. So he can know what his will is. Um, however, do we have the Urim and Thummim? No. Do we even have the whole sacrificial system? No. no. That has been done away with. I want to say that once more. That has been done away with. So we don't even have a high priest to ask the Lord. Amen? Because we have the real thing in heaven. Amen. Dreams and prophets. There are different modes of operation God has used. But by far, the most used mode of operation that God uses to communicate to us is through what? Any questions so far? Following along pretty simple stuff, yeah? Do you see how so far we haven't veered away from the Scriptures? Praise God for that, amen? We don't need to go away from Scriptures to establish what we believe in. Um, under B there, it says... God has spoken how? Audibly. He has communicated with some face to face. Kind of jealous of those ones, I must admit. He communicated to the high priest, to the Urim and Thummim. He has revealed himself to some in dreams and visions. However, by far the most common modus operandi or mode of operation has been communication via what? The prophets. Um, they're up the back there. Alright, great. How many do we have left? Two. Okay, I'll have to print more for the next session. That'll, that's fine. Um, okay. So, just as is... I think it's important to know the hierarchy of how that message actually comes to us. Okay. What, what do we need to know? Hierarchy. The hierarchy. How does it come from God to Boris? Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. And I think this is by far the most plain place in Scripture where it actually describes how it happens, okay? Revelation chapter 1, we'll be beginning in verse 1. Revelation is the last book in Scriptures. Revelation chapter what? 1. one. All right. Revelation chapter 1, and we'll start reading in verse 1. And by the way, who's got a King James Version Bible? Raise your hand. The title, this thing, what does yours say? And then under it, what's it say? <laughs> the Revelation of St. John Divine. I, I, I asked this in class the other day when I was teaching. Um, the, there was a person who had the true... Description of it. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. This is the revelation of who? And what does revelation even mean? God's revealing himself. Jesus is revealing himself through this book, okay? We know that in the very first verse. Let's read it. The revelation of who? Jesus, Jesus Christ. Now check this out, the hierarchy. Which God gave him... To show his servants things which must what? And he sent them and signified it by who? His angel to his servant who? Who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We're about to get into the whole testimony of Jesus thing right now. To all things that he what? So he went from God to who? To Jesus. He went from God to Jesus to who? Jesus. 
the angel to who? To who? Us, the church. Uh oh. So once more, from God to Jesus to the angel to the church. And this is why we see Daniel often talking to the angel. You see that? How many of you, if you've gone into the book of Daniel, I'm, I'm always like, well, if God's given this vision, why was he talking to the angel? Well, Boris, <laughs> learn your Bible. <laughs> because that's how God works. That's the hierarchy of receiving. It goes from God the Father to Jesus, the angel messenger, prophet, and to the church at, la church at large. Now, the testimony of Jesus. You have in your outlines there. Let's first go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Revelation chapter what? 12 and verse 17. This is the first scripture that we turn to when we begin. Uh, you might want to memorize this one as well because uh, this is the verse which actually identifies God's true people at the end of time. If you want to do a deeper study on it, please approach me later. I'll be more than happy to do that. Verse 17 of Revelation chapter 12. It says, and who? The dragon or Satan was enraged with the church or the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the... Um, a friend of mine, Mark Howard, um, was telling me about an article that Dale Ratzleff wrote about this phrase, the testimony of Jesus. And he went here, there, and everywhere to show that the testimony of Jesus means um, your experience with Jesus. That it's, you know, the testimony of what Jesus has done in your life. Now, just think about that logically real quick. And I don't mean to be ironic or anything like that. However, if God is saying that there's this specific group at the end of time who are truly serving him, and he's giving us characteristics to be able to identify them, do you think the characteristics would be like, oh, they have to keep the commandments of God and they love Jesus? That's like saying, hey, I've got a friend coming in from New York. Can you pick him up from the airport? Yeah, no problem. Um, how, how can I identify him? Oh, he's got a white shirt and blue jeans. <laughs> like what church out there doesn't try claim that he has this relationship with Jesus? And he went so many verses trying to kind of connect dots which shouldn't be connected, I think. But purposefully, I believe, avoided this one text which, which is absolutely destroys it. Okay? Two texts, actually, that destroy it. So it has... What, what are the two identifying marks of the remnant? Has the testimony of Jesus and they do what? So the question is, what is the testimony of Jesus, right? Let's go to Revelation chapter 19, verse 10 real quick. It's just a few pages over in my Bible, at least. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. What chapter? 19, 19 and we're going to be reading from verse 10. I fell on my face to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow what? And of your brethren who have what? The testimony of Jesus, worshiping God. For the what? Testimony of Jesus is... The spirit of what? Prophecy. But it goes much plainer than that. Are you ready for it? Yes. This text debunks 
the whole theory that we're about to go to. Because they're saying it's got nothing to do with prophets. It's, you know, this spirit of whatever. First, let's reread this and let's start in verse 9, okay? So we get a bit of context somewhat. Context. When you've studied the Bible, please get context. Then he said to me, he is the angel which Jesus gave the message to, to give to John, all right? Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are calling to the, uh, pardon me, called to the marriage of the supper, uh, marriage supper of the Lamb, pardon me. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. The angel just said this, and check out what John did. And I did what? Fell at his feet to worship him. John fell to worship this angel. We know we're not meant to worship anyone other than God. John fell. He heard these things. John fell and went to worship the angel. And praise the God, this was an angel of integrity. Amen. And look at what the angel said. But he said to me, see that you don't do that. I am your fellow what? And of your what? Who have the... Now jump with me to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, and let's start reading in verse 8. Now look how it's the exact same scenario. The angel's just given John a message, and check out what John does again. After the angel rebukes him, he says, hey, don't worship me. I'm your fellow servant. I'm your brethren, the one who has the testimony of Jesus. He says, now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, what did I do? I fell down to do what? Worship before his feet. Do you see the exact same scenario happening? And look at what the angel says. The same thing. He says the exact same thing, but in different words. He says, uh, pardon me. And the angel of the Lord showed me these things. Uh, pardon me. Fell down on his feet to worship the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you what? Do not do that. Same thing. For I am your fellow what? Servant. And of your what? The the last time he says, see that you don't do that. I'm your fellow servant, your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. This time he says the exact same thing. I am your fellow servant, the brethren who have uh, the, the prophets. The testimony of Jesus is the prophetic ministry. What is it? The what? The prophetic ministry. It is. But the question I ask is, why is it called the testimony of Jesus then if he's referring to prophets? Do you, do you understand that question? It's pretty, pretty logical. Go with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. You know, if he's referring to prophets, why is he saying the testimony of Jesus? Like, couldn't they just make stuff a little simpler for us? <laughs> why are they referring it to it as the testimony of Jesus? 1 Peter. It's after James. Let's start reading in verse 10. 1 Peter Chapter 1 and verse 10. What verse? Alright, chapter 1, verse 10. And it says, Of the salvation, the what? Prophets, Prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Who what? Prophesied. Prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Now listen very carefully, verse 11. Searching what manner, pardon me, searching what or what manner of time, the what? 
Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he did what? Tester what? Testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and glories that would follow. And so on and so forth. Jesus Christ was in them and they and he did what? Testified. What does it mean to testify? You know, say I'm in court and you got the big judge there and you got the whole jury system and then I'm getting questioned. What am I doing? I am testifying. By testifying, what am I doing? Witness or sharing my testimony. Jesus gave his testimony to who? The prophets. And so all they shared was the testimony of Jesus. So I guess you could say what the prophets do is just the testimony of Jesus. That's why in Revelation chapter 1 again, jump there again. Revelation chapter 1, which we read at the, to start this whole thing off. Well, the second part of it. It says, Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly come to place. And he sent and signified him by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the what? Testimony of what? The Bible just tells us that God, Jesus, gives it to the angel the angel gives it to the messenger and the messenger just shares what Jesus shared to the angel. He's sharing the testimony of Jesus. So I guess you could say that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. You following? No prophecy comes by any private interpretation, but men, what? Supposed as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That word moved really means driven. Who's driving him? Jesus is sharing his testimony and they're just sharing what Jesus has told them. Do you see why scripture refers to the prophetic gift as the testimony of Jesus? Because God forbid that these men take credit for that message. When it's not their message at all, it is God's. Amen? Amen. They are mere spokesmen, the mouth of God. Remember in Matthew 1, where we read in verse 22, where it says, where the Lord spoke through the prophets. So whose testimony is it? The Lord's. He's just speaking through the prophets. So the prophetic gift is the testimony of Jesus. You following? Pretty simple stuff, yeah? Do you see how powerful it is when we just use the Bible to answer itself? <laughs> it's so clear. God's, God does not desire for any, us, any of us to be left in darkness. For any of us to question our faith. To any of us to wonder why on earth are we what we are. God knows and he'll do all that he can so that we can know the truth. When is this workshop till? 10.45? We got another 45? Do you guys want to have a break now? Oh, let me see where we are. Let's have a break right now, and then we'll get into it, okay? Let's have a 10-minute break, get up, walk around.